I'm Derek Thompson, longtime writer with The Atlantic Magazine on tech, culture, and politics. There is a lot of noise out there, and my goal is to cut through the headlines, loud tweets, and hot takes in my new podcast, Plain English. I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know to give you clear viewpoints and memorable takeaways. Plain English starts November 16th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett, recording late Wednesday night after the Celts escape in New York with a 108-104 win in the season opener. Man, that thing got way too close. Way too close. You were up 30-18 to after the first quarter were the Celtics. Tatum's going off, Porzingis is going off, and... It looked like it was going to be all Celtics and they were going to run the Knicks out of the building. And I didn't think there was going to be a competitive game whatsoever. They looked unbeatable in that first quarter. And then they just sort of, they had these issues throughout the game where they just kept letting the Knicks come back in this one. And if you really think about it, what hurt the Celtics was the start of that fourth quarter where in the third quarter, the Knicks got back into it, but then the Celtics close really well at the end of the third quarter, and then the Knicks outscore the Celtics 26-11 to to begin that fourth quarter. So we'll get into the issues the Celtics had in greater detail here, but the one thing that you love to see is down the stretch, the Celtics outscore the Knicks 15-5 to to end the game and really essentially steal it back from the Knicks after the Knicks had come all the way back to take the lead from the Celtics. So let's start with that, the positive, how they close this thing out before I get to one of the main issues in the game, it was Tatum and Porzingis, and really it was mainly Porzingis. Porzingis sprints in transition, gets a foul on Grimes on a cross match, just sprints down the floor, makes it 101.99 after he hits a pair of free throws. 101.99, Porzingis gets a rebound, okay? 
And then he's called for a tee where he hits Hartenstein in the face. I don't know what he's supposed to do there. There's nowhere for his elbow to go. But nonetheless, luckily, maybe it's the whole Rasheed Wallace ball don't lie situation. Brunson misses the free throw and then Porzingis. And that was a monstrous rebound he, gra- he grabbed. He hits both the free throws on the other end. So he ties it up 101 to 101. Then Brunson comes down and Porzingis alters his shot just enough where Brunson, who's got that nice little floater game, he has to throw it a little bit higher off the backboard so it misses. And they go down the other end to the Celtics. And what happens? Jason Tatum gets double teamed at the top of the key, kicks it out to Porzingis. Porzingis hits a open three, makes it 104 to 101. So just really, really big shots by Kristaps Porzingis and big plays down the stretch. And after it's 104 to 102, after Randall misses one of his two free throws, he puts the ball on the deck. It's 104-102, critical play in the game, puts the ball on the deck. He kind of gets by Hartenstein. Hartenstein has to follow him. He gets to the free throw line. He makes both free throws, makes it 106-102. So down the stretch of this game, Porzingis completely took over. He was the difference in the game. If you're looking for the big takeaway from the game, Porzingis was the difference. This is what we talked about. You needed a new weapon down the stretch of these games. Tonight, that weapon was the guy that you traded for in the offseason in Kristaps Porzingis. He opens up so much for you offensively. We'll get into that in greater detail. But this game, if this happened last year when you went down 99-93, you wouldn't have had another way to win this game. You would have tried to chuck up threes and try to do it this way. And look, yes, Porzingis had a three, but it's a wide open three created by the double team from Jason Tatum. But they would have lost this game last year. You would not have had a big man sprint in transition to get a cross match on Grimes to get to the free throw line. You wouldn't have a big man that would give you the type of spacing where he gets a wide open three after the Jason Tatum double team. And you would not have a big that was in the corner that, no disrespect to Al, that can drive a closeout and get a foul at the end of the game and then ice the game with the big free throw down the stretch. This was about Porzingis. And this was, it's one game, and the Celtics have a lot to clean up after this one. But this was proof of concept. The Celtics needed to change their offensive identity. Game one, we get proof why they needed to do that. This same game last year, the Celtics lose. The huge difference in this one is what Porzingis was able to do. And just the diversity he brings to the offensive side of the ball. If this was just the team you had last year, you lose this thing. And you look at Porzingis in the game, he finishes with 30 points. He's a game high plus 13. He's 8 of 15 from the floor. So what's that? 53.3%. He's 5 of 9 from deep. That's north of 55%. Eight rebounds, four blocks. He was incredible. He is the difference maker. This is what puts you over the top. When you need to grind out a game late, when you need to play in the mud, when it's getting ugly, he won you the game. And you wouldn't think of Porzingis in that way because he doesn't come across as like a traditional tough guy. But just what he brings to the table allowed you to win a game in the mud. This is a game that the Celtics would have issues with in previous seasons. They were 1-3 and three against the Knicks last year because they just died by the three. They had their worst shooting game from a three-point percentage last year against the Knicks. And there are two other losses against the Knicks. They're south of the league average of 36% from three. And despite the fact that you had problems in this game, you could win it late because you're now different offensively that's the biggest takeaway I had from this game and just some more on Porzingis just right away he gets a lob from Derek White Derek White is driving and Mitchell Robinson's covering Porzingis and he's trying to help on that but he doesn't realize Porzingis just sneaks behind him and runs to the basket gets an easy lob that's just a heads up play right 
Then he got a wide open three to make it 14 to eight. He actually, just by his presence, he gave Tatum after this. So he hits the initial three to make it 14 to eight. But after this, he gives Tatum an ISO on Grimes, a smaller player, because Mitchell wouldn't leave Kristaps Porzingis. So Tatum has the ball at the nail, and he's just going through Grimes, and Mitchell Robinson isn't helping. I should say Mitchell. Mitchell Robinson isn't helping because Porzingis had just hit a three. Okay, and even when Al will hit threes, defenses don't react that way. They react differently with Kristaps Porzingis. Then he got to the free throw line dribbling and spinning on Mitchell Robinson. He got a step back two off the glass to make it 27 to 15. Three off a screen from Pritchard to make it 30 to 18 at the end of the quarter there. 15 in the first. As I said, he finishes with 30 in the game. He had three threes. He's a plus 12 in the first quarter. After that, he had a sick help block on Randall where he just came out of nowhere when the score was 42-36. rather. He blocked Mitchell Robinson. where Mitchell Robinson tried to score over him. And Porzingis is just like, dude... 7-4. He just blocked it back in his face. He then had an unreal block on R.J. Barrett in transition, and then we mentioned the plays that he had at the end of the game as well, but just huge, huge plays from Chris. He did get the T for flopping, though. I guess this is a new emphasis. We saw Jalen Brunson get one as well, but I, I thought, all in all, an unbelievable debut for Porzingis, and I'm wondering, and we'll get into Jalen in a minute here, I think there's a possibility that we may finish the season and say, Kristaps uh, Porzingis, is he the second best player on this team? Now, Drew Holiday is going to bring a lot, and he's going to bring a ton to this team, especially for the postseason. But man, Kristaps Porzingis is such a unique player. And we've all talked about this in the past. There is some redundancy with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. It's just Jason Tatum is so much better of a player than Jalen Brown. And this is not meant to be an indictment on Jalen Brown. But when we look at Porzingis, he may be the second most important player on this team because of what he does for the offense. We saw it tonight, game one of the season. You win this game, you're the better team down the stretch because of the seven foot four guy that can shoot threes and opens everything up. That's why you won the game from Kristaps Porzingis. So that's why I'm saying this, that he could be the second most important player on the team because you've never had this element to the offense and it just, it was great to watch down the stretch. I thought Tatum was awesome, by the way. 34 points, 11 rebounds. He was 13 of 22 from the field, so what, 59.1%. 3 of 8 from deep, 37.5%. And this is what you ask for, right? I've said this multiple times. There's no reason that Jason Tatum should be a below-average three-point shooter. There's no way that he should be shooting 35% from three like he did last year. If he can keep that over 37%, that's a really good number for Tatum, considering how much damage now he can do on the inside, which is the more important thing. Tatum in this game is 8 of 9 in the restricted area. Here are the players, the qualified players that took more than nine attempts in the restricted area last season. Giannis, that's the entire list. That's the whole list. Nobody took more than, the only guy that took more than nine shots per game in the restricted area is Giannis. You know, like the biggest beast in the NBA. Tatum took nine tonight. So (laughs) it just shows you like this 12 pounds that he put on, it's real. He's getting downhill. He's overpowering smaller defenders. We talked about this in the off season. He needs to weaponize his physicality He certainly had. So that was massive to see from Jason Tatum in this game. I mean, you think about it. Right off the bat, he overpowers Grimes in semi-transition, makes it two to nothing. Just walks him down. Then he hits a step back in transition. He's got the step back game going again, which wasn't great for him last year. Then he had a nice pull up two, 11 to eight, mid-range. Jason Tatum should be a good mid-range shooter. He hasn't been in the past couple of years. Let's see if he can get that back. Then he had a six step back over quickly. 
where Doc said, yeah, he was lining that one up from half court. So that was a nice play by Tatum as well. He finishes the first quarter, 10 points plus 11. And then I'll tell you this, like Tatum has had some ridiculous rebounds in this game. And I told you, I think he could average double digits. I think he could average a double-double this season. I mean, he had 11 in this game tonight, and he got a couple where he's just out of position, and he comes out of nowhere and just grabs him. He is an exceptional rebounder, one of the best rebounders in the sport. And if you look at from the numbers perspective of non-bigs, he led the NBA in rebounding for non-bigs last year. And a couple more plays after a Porzingis block, he gets right to the bucket. So Porzingis blocks it, and Tatum's like, no, nope, I'm getting this ball. I'm going right downhill, makes it 45 36. He gets a switch on Mitchell Robinson. He finishes around him with his left, a pretty finish to make it 47-39, which is nice to see. He gets to the paint, goes right past Julius Randle and dunks, and he kind of like hangs on the rim a little bit to make it 51-44. Say 19 and 6 in the first half. Then later on in the third quarter, got Mitchell in a cross match, goes through him, scores an and one, makes it Mitchell Robinson. I don't know why I keep saying Mitchell. Mitchell Robinson makes it 54-46. Had Grimes on him, hits another. He abused Grimes, hit a step back on him. I don't know why. I guess Grimes is their primary defender on good players. He's not big enough to cover Tatum. This is what we were asking for. Hey, if you get small guys on you, overpower me. Did it all night. And then he got deep post position, got to the line. Brunson got a flop on that play as well. And then, of course, like the clutch play late that I talk about with Porzingis, it was Jason Tatum, them reacting to Jason Tatum and what he had done so far that night, the 34 points. They overreact to him, they double him, and they leave an open Kristaps Porzingis, and Tatum makes the right basketball play. So I thought Tatum was absolutely outstanding in this game. And like this whole idea of, hey, he is going to be more physical. He is going to get to the basket more. We saw it on display in the first game of the season. He took nine shots in the restricted area. Okay, let's get to the rough part of the night. One of the biggest issues, it came in that fourth quarter. Jalen was flat out bad. There's no other way to describe it. Jalen was just bad in this game. And I said with Grandy, and I've thought this throughout the preseason, I thought he was going to have some issues with now the other offensive weapons the Celtics have. And I said it after the preseason game. I'm worried, like, is Jalen going to be a ball stopper at times? And I think we saw that. But the bigger concern, like, you look at it, 11 points, he's 4 of 11. (laughs) And look, it's one game. (laughs) I'm not trying to overreact, but this is kind of what I thought we may see at times from Jalen this season. So he's 4 of 11, 36.4%. He did have the five assists, which is surprising. Also, the five fouls. He he had some really bad ones. Like, he had that one before the half. I don't know what he was thinking in that particular situation. But how about the possessions, the back-to-back-to-back possessions in the fourth quarter? He throws the ball away looking for Holiday on a drive. There was no way that ball was... I I don't even know why he thought to throw that. So it's 96-93 at that time. That leads to a Randall three going down the other way, which ties up the game. Then he carelessly... Throws it away on an inbound. Now, some of that is on Tatum, too, but more on Jalen. Tatum's not looking for the ball there. Tatum doesn't think he's the guy bringing the ball. Jalen just throws it in. They steal the inbound. Grimes gets a wide-open three. Well, not even a wide-open three, but Grimes gets a three-point attempt, and Jalen fouls him. Now, luckily, they missed the free throw, but Grimes, or or excuse me, they missed the free throw. Grimes did hit the three, though, so that's six points on Jalen. That's just stuff that can't happen. You can't be throwing the ball away like that, especially in a tight game like this. And just some other stuff in the game that I noticed. There was some positive, but a lot of negative. Second possession of the game, he just dribbled the ball around and threw it away. Like, I don't know. Move the ball, okay? He did go coast to coast on a rebound after a Randall miss. That's when Jalen's at his best, getting out there in transition. And then he, at one point, 
He's at the top of the key. He has Tatum wide open. Tatum on the wing, and Tatum's going crazy in the first half. Tatum has his hands up. He's on the wing wide open. Jason Tatum should not be wide open in the wing. Jalen doesn't even see him. It's not like he chose he was going to take the step back that he dribbled in and he missed a step back. It wasn't like he just chose to take that. The problem there is that he didn't see Tatum. How do you not see? He's wide open. And this is sort of the thing that we've talked about for years with Jalen. He just gets blinders on. And I do feel like part of it is Tatum's going off. Porzingis is going off and Jalen's sort of thinking like, okay, I'm the guy that just got $300 million. I got to get mine. And I'm not saying that he's a selfish player, but I do think there's part of it to his game where he knows he needs to get his shots up. And I just feel like in this game tonight, he tried to do too much. He just made too many critical mistakes. In the first half, he's two of seven, oh of three, five points. Now I will say this, he had a nice deal on Brunson to start the third, but it was a kick. So, like, he scored at the other end, but it was a kick. Like, he should have been called for that. Transition, he missed a wide-open lefty layup. Uh, when I don't know why he had to get that T. Like, it's 64-63, goes to the basket, gets followed by Hartenstein. I, look, it's a borderline T, but just let it go, man. Like, I, I don't understand why you get in. It's a close game. You don't need a technical there. And then, at one point, like, defensively, this is the stuff I, t- like, Jalen said before the season, he wants to be better on defense. Randall is trying to back down Drew Holiday. Holiday is holding his ground, okay? Holding his ground. And Randall was not shooting the ball well at all. Holiday's holding his ground. Holiday's one of the best defenders in the NBA. Brunson is at the top of the key, okay? So he's on the le- trying to get to the left block as Randall, but he's struggling to get there because Holiday is fighting back and not allowing him to get there. Jalen doubles. Okay, Jalen doubles. Leaves Brunson open for a wide open three. Brunson cans it. It's like, what are you doing? And first of all, he can see it. He can see the double coming. It's not even like you disguised it. It was just, it was a very, very bad decision. I just, I absolutely hated that decision. But anyway, he did find Holiday for a nice layup at the end of the game. But I just worry about Jalen fitting in with this team this year. Because, look, we all know he's an exceptional scorer. We all know he's an exceptional talent. But all sort of the questions we've had with him throughout his career. Is he going to be sleepy on defense? Is he going to make bad decisions on defense? He did that. He followed the three-point shooter. He helped off a guy that he shouldn't have helped off. Like, don't let Brunson get a wide open three. That makes no sense. He had careless turnovers. He had fouls that made no sense. So just, I know it's one game. I don't want to overreact, but he's the one guy that I think like, and I'm not saying he has to do exactly this, but I think back and ordinarily you'd point to Holiday, the veteran who comes over late. Like he's the guy that's going to have to sacrifice the most. I do think that Jalen's going to have to sacrifice. Tatum's not sacrificing. He doesn't need to. He's not going to have to because he's one of the, whatever the list is, top five, top, he's somewhere in the top 10, right? I know he's all NBA top five. So he's probably not to start the season, a top five player, but he can clearly be a top five player in the league. And there's no debating who's a better player, Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown. He's going to get his points. His shots are not going to be affected. Kristaps Porzingis, because of the uniqueness he brings, he's going to get his shots. He played 38 minutes tonight. He's going to need to get his shots. I think Jalen, it's going to be more difficult for him to find his shots in the rhythm of the offense. Because last year, it's just like, we know these are the two best players in terms of guys that can score, Tatum and Jalen Brown, even if Derek White, from a value perspective, may have provided more value. Jalen's going to have to find a way to get his points, get them efficiently, and not sort of hijack the offense. And that's sort of what scares me with Jalen entering the season. Not that I think that he's going to have a bad year or anything along those lines, but I do think there's an adjustment period. And he's not sort of Ray Allen, right? Where when Ray made the sacrifice, he took like seven less shots per game. You knew what he was going to do. He was going to run off a million screens, 
get wide open or get threes, and he was going to space the floor for everybody. That's where Ray was at his career. Jalen's just like entering the prime of his career. So it's not the same level of sacrifice, but you do need the guy that you just gave the supermax to. You need him to be the guy that sacrifices from my perspective, because I thought he was a damaging player in this game tonight. I really did. And it's something that we're going to have to monitor going forward. I wonder if it's like sets they have to get to Jalen just to make sure he gets his shots and all that different type of stuff. But He's just not great, in, or at least he hasn't been great playing in the rhythm of the offense, especially with all these smart players, Holiday, Derek White, Jason Tate, and Porzingis brings that spacing element. He's going to have to find a way to fit in better than he did in this game tonight. Like I said, it's one game, but I do really believe that Porzingis this year is going to be more important to this team's success than Jalen Brown. That's just the reality of it. Okay, Holiday, nine points, just four of 10 from the field, one of five from three. You can tell he's still trying to get in to rhythm. I thought he had some nice plays, blocked Barrett when the shot clock was running down. He hit some timely shots. Actually, on the broadcast, Doc Rivers compared him to Mo Cheeks. I, I, I did not watch Mo Cheeks play, but I guess Mo Cheeks would just take a couple of shots a game. They'd all be like in critical points, according to Doc. I take his word for it. But he had a walk up three to make it 19-11. The Knicks cut it to four. He gets by Mitchell Robinson, a switch, step back two, makes it 42-36. And then when it was 104 to 101, he got the offensive rebound to extend that possession. So huge plays from Drew Holiday. That's what you sort of expect. I think he's going to be better as the season goes on from an offensive perspective. As for Al, one thing I noticed in this game, he's going to the glass a lot on the offensive end. And I wonder if that's because there's no Rob. They did talk about, did Joe Mazzulla about creating more possessions. So I wonder if that's sort of the calculus. Like if Al's in the corner, there's really no reason... For him to sprint back on defense, right? He, he doesn't have to because there's going to be a guy from a floor spacing perspective that's going to be at the top of the key. So I'm wondering if they're going to use Al as sort of an offensive rebounder if he's in the corner. Now, if he's at the top of the key, he's not going to run in for an offensive rebound, obviously. You got to have good floor spacing. But I thought that was an interesting little wrinkle. He had a, And he had a couple of big shots, trailer three to make it 71-66, and then he had a corner three to make it 76-68, which he's going to get a ton of these. He was in the 95th percentile via clean of the glass last year, hit almost 49% of his corner three. So he had some big shots. I thought Al did a nice job coming off the bench, came in with some energy. Hauser gave you nothing, 0 of 4 from deep. And he can just be so up and down. We've gone through it where he had two brutal months last year, was not effective in the playoffs, had a good start to the season. Then he went through the slump, then he found it at the end of the season. I think that's part of the reason he got back in the rotation for the playoffs. So if he wants to stay out there, he's going to hit threes because he only played 14 minutes. You need more minutes out of Hauser considering this bench is sort of thin. Pritchard, he hit the free throws late, but just 11 minutes for him. Obviously, he's going to play a lot more as the season goes on. I thought he did a good job where Dante DiVincenzo was like up and pressuring him and he just kind of went by him, made it 84-80. The one mistake he made is... He drove into a triple team when Jason Tatum was in the post and he had a smaller defender on him. Just give him the ball. I thought that sometimes he can get himself into trouble when he does that. And look, I like the fact that he's aggressive and all that, but there's no reason to dribble into a triple team there. Cornette, he <laughs> he barely hit the rim on a hook shot. But anyway, he entered the game when it was 30-18 to 18 in the second quarter. And he played all his minutes, basically all his minutes with another big there. He left, it's 40-31, to 31, so they were outscored 13-10. to 10. I'm interested to see if they stay with that double big lineup. It may just be like the substitution pattern, but Cornette with another big, I don't know if that makes the most sense going forward. It was an interesting lineup. I'm just wondering if that's something, like you have to start to sort of try different lineups, right? Early on in the season. So I'm not going to like hold Joe, 
like be like, oh, this is a stupid line. I, I can't say that yet. Like you have to find out who works together, who plays well together. So it's fine giving Cornette a shot with Al Horford. I just think that's a weird lineup. I don't. I, if you're gonna do that, I rather it sort of be Porzingis and one of the other bigs, like Porzingis and Cornette, or Porzingis and Al. Or if that's the case, not have the double big lineup if you're playing Cornette and have Tatum on the court with have four perimeter players and Cornette. I, I don't think that the two big lineup works well with him and Al together. That's just my thought. Anyway, on Missoula, he, he well, I don't know if, I never know like if you blame the coach on this or whoever is giving him the information, right? Because it's 24 to 13 in the first quarter and he makes a challenge and they lose the challenge. It's an out of bounds play. That's a tough challenge to win to begin with. So he may have gotten bad information, but that obviously was not great. Um, end of the game, I thought was interesting. It's 106 to 104 at the end. And the Celtics have the ball. The Knicks are going to have to foul. They had to call the two timeouts to advance it to half court. So Joe takes Porzingis out, which I thought was interesting because I think like Porzingis obviously hit his free throws. He's 9 of 10 from the free throw line tonight. So I thought that was odd. And he's a big target. But I mean, in, in Joe's defense, he got a wide open pass to Pritchard. So the play worked. But the interesting part of it was this. So if you weren't watching closely, you probably didn't catch this. But obviously you can't take Pritchard out of the game after the first free throw because he's the guy in the line. So then it's like, well, who do you take out of the game? Because you need to get Porzingis back on the court in case the Knicks decide that they're going to call it. If the Knicks don't call a timeout, right? You want Porzingis on the court. So if you look at the lineup out there, so remember, you can't take Pritchard out of the game. So you have Tatum, Holiday, Derek White, and you're bringing Porzingis back in the game. So who's Porzingis going to come in for? He comes in for Jalen. Okay, Jalen gets taken off the court in what would have been a critical defensive possession down the stretch of the game. And then, of course, Tibbs ends up calling the timeout. So you just put Jalen back on the court anyway. But that's an interesting thing because I don't think that Joe Mazzullo would have done that last year, where he's just inheriting this team that had just went to the NBA Finals. He certainly would have not have done that with Marcus Smart. Would he have had sort of the confidence in himself to say, I'm taking a guy that was just an all-NBA player off the floor at the end of the game for a hypothetical defensive possession? Now, it didn't end up working out that way, but the point, he did it. He took Jalen off the court. I thought that was interesting to begin with, that they took Porzingis off the court for that. Like I said, I thought that Porzingis is a good free throw shooter. I thought that would have been easier. Like he's an easy target to throw the ball to, but just interesting. So I wonder like, man, first game of the year, Jalen's taken out for a defense possession. And like I said, based on the personnel on the court, completely justified. But you would not have seen Joe make that move last year. Okay, a couple of other things I wanted to mention. The Celtics only took 77 shots in this game. Last year, they were at 88.8, which was 15th. And by the way, the Celtics won and they took 20 less shots than the Knicks, okay? Part of that is, and by the way, like, that would have been last in the league last year, taking 77 shots. But part of that was, the reason the Celtics win, this comes back to the whole Porzingis thing, right? You won in different ways tonight. The Celtics were 25 of 38 on twos, 65.8%. The Kings led the league at 58.6%. So you were significantly better, 7.2 percentage points better if you want to be exact, than the best two-point shooting team in the league last year. And a lot of that going back to this Tatum guy. Tatum was 10 of 14 on two, 71.4%. Only Giannis and Embiid 
were made at least 10 twos per game last year. Let me repeat that. Jason Tatum made 10 twos tonight. Only Giannis and Embiid made 10 twos per game last year. <laughs> and they shot 59.6% and 58.7%. Tatum shot 71.4%. Obviously, he's not going to hit 10 twos tonight. It's just, it's more evidence that he's getting to the basket. Remember, eight of those makes came in the restricted area. Okay, they also, the Celtics did, they got to the free throw line 26 times. So, when you get outshot by 20, where are you making this up? 26 free throws. Now, unfortunately, the Knicks took 26 free throws too. They couldn't hit any. They were 14 of 26 from the line. Horrible. Randall was couldn't hit a free throw to save his life. So they shot 53.8%. Meanwhile, the Celtics, if you look at it, the 26 attempts, only the Lakers were north of 26 attempts last year. And there was some whole thing, there was a whole thing about were the Lakers getting calls? Because remember, they bitched about that whole game against the Celtics. But nonetheless, the Celtics last year were at just 21.6 attempts per game, 28th. And the 22 makes that the Celtics had at the free throw line, Philly led the league last year at 21. So they hit more free throws than the league leader last year. And that's Embiid, because Embiid lives at the free throw line. The Celtics, by the way, just 17.5 makes last year, 24th. So Joe Missoula told us, sometimes you have to win differently. And they won differently. They won at the free throw line. Give them credit. Especially Porzingis coming back to him. He took 10 free throws. He's the difference maker in the game, him and Tatum. And then the other thing I'd mentioned, which I didn't like, and this is something, the Knicks, it's just a weird matchup for the Celtics going back to last year. So you don't make any like big judgments, although I did say I'm concerned about the Jalen fitting in type of thing. But anyway, so if you look at the Celtics last year, 99.15 the pace was. That's 20th in the NBA. They played at a 96.50 pace tonight. Only the Cavaliers played slower last year. So you would like them to play a little bit faster naturally with all the athleticism they have. And the other thing is, a good thing, 14.0 fast break points per game last year tied for 15th. They had 18 tonight. Only Memphis and Indiana were north of 18 last year. So that's a good sign. I would like them to play faster, but you did see them getting out in the break and they're dynamic when they get out on the break. But a first game that I didn't think was going to be very eventful from the way it started. It did. I thought the Celtics showed a lot of balls battling back the way they did in the fourth quarter. As I mentioned off the top, the difference this year is Porzingis. You lose that game last year. If it's Marcus Smart and Grant Williams and Rob Williams, Porzingis is a massive difference maker. And you can clearly see why the Celtics have been interested in Porzingis for a while, why they wanted him here, why they want to extend him. He makes life easier for Jason Tatum. You certainly saw this tonight. I thought Tatum was outstanding as well. My one concern going forward and sort of my one plot line I'm keeping an eye on is Jalen Brown and how he fits into this offense. All right, a lot more to get into. I have one note on the Patriots offense and why Bill O'Brien deserves more credit than Mac Jones for the win last Sunday. The Red Sox made a hiring. And I do want to get into the Bruins as well because they're an absolute wagon right now. Jump into the NBA action with FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers can bet $5 and get $200 in bonus bets guaranteed. Plus, all customers get three months of NBA League Pass courtesy of FanDuel when they place a $5 bet on the NBA. That way, you can watch all the action as you bet on everything from point spreads to player props. Best of all, you'll get paid your winnings instantly. All right, now I'm looking at the same game parlay for the big game coming up on Thursday night between the Bucks and the 76ers. Damian Lillard, of course, making his debut in a Bucks uniform. How about this? For plus 222, Giannis for 25 points, Embiid for 25 points, Lillard three made threes, and the Bucks on the money line. That's for plus 222, so pretty good value there. 
So don't miss your chance to get $200 in bonus bets plus three months of NBA League Pass. Just visit FanDuel.com slash Pike and tip off the NBA season right. FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. All customer offer. $5 NBA wager required. Limit one pass per customer across both offers. Restrictions apply. Void where prohibited. See full terms for both offers at fanduel.com sportsbook. NBA League Pass. Local blackout restrictions apply. Welcome back into Off the Pike. So I alluded to this the other day when James White was on with us, and I just want to make sure that I preface this by saying I thought Mac played really well on Sunday, but I don't think it was a super hard game plan for a quarterback to execute, okay? This wasn't Tom Brady going up against the Legion of Boom or some of those great Broncos defenses that he went up against. Sure, the Bills, they're a good defense, but the Patriots, and in particular Bill O'Brien, They made life easy on Mac Jones. And just to sort of put this into context, a little metric man breakdown of what Bill O'Brien did for Mac in that game. So if you look at Mac via next-gen stats in that game last Sunday, his time to throw was 2.19. That was the quickest in the entire NFL. Now on the season, Mac is low as well. He's at fourth at 2.49. But the gap is significant there, right? To go from 2.49 to 2.19. That's a significant gap. But even so, you can say, well... He still has been somebody that gets rid of the ball quickly all season long. What's the big difference? What did he do so much better in that game last Sunday? So the difference is they schemed it up for Mac in that game on Sunday. Mac's expected completion percentage was 72.7%. That was the third best in the NFL. So what is that telling you? That's telling you that the quarterback's job was easy. So basically... He should have, now he did better than this, but he should have completed 72.7% of his passes. That's a ridiculously high number, right? So that means that the coaching staff, and in particular Bill O'Brien, helped him. They made life easy for Mac. On the season, Mac's expected completion percentage is at 65.8%, which is ninth. So it's been pretty good in terms of that number on the season. But there is a large increase when we're talking about almost seven percentage points higher than what he's been accustomed to during the regular season. So the throws really could not have been easier for Mac in that game. The other thing is this. Mac's air yards per completion, 4.2 in that game. Only seven quarterbacks were lower. On the season, he's at 4.5. Only three quarterbacks are lower the entire season. So actually, he was lower than his season average in terms of air yards per completion. So Mac wasn't throwing the ball down the field at all. He was at 4.2 yards. On the season, he's at 4.5. So how did he have so much more success in this game? What's the difference? Well, it's Bill O'Brien, as we keep alluding to. So a couple of things that Bill O'Brien did in that game. First of all, we saw a little bit more play action. Seven attempts, 21.2% of his dropbacks. That was 12th in week seven. So 21.2%, a fine number. As I mentioned, that's seventh in the NFL. And you can think about some of those plays, right? They drew up a play action pass to Farrell Brown where he had a big gain. So Mac on a play action was five of seven, 71.4%. So really good numbers on the season in terms of play action pass attempts or just dropbacks at a play action. Max is just 17.5%. That's 29th in the NFL. So this past week, he's up 17 spots, right? In terms of dropbacks at a play action in terms of the percentage. And he's up 3.7 percentage points. So that's significant. Anytime you can grab the low-hanging fruit in the NFL, you need to do it. 
Bill O'Brien did that last Sunday after not doing it for most of the year. Now, you can say some of that is game flow. Not being down 17 early on in the game certainly helps the Patriots and certainly helps Bill O'Brien in terms of using everything that's in his playbook. I get all that, but I thought play action would be a bigger part of the offense, and I'm glad that we saw it last week. All right, so we saw more play action, but still, the air yards per completion was lower than it's been on average this season. So what else happened? Well, Mack was averaging 113 yak yards per game, yards after the catch per game, I should say. 113, right? So if you look at that number last Sunday, the yak in that game was 166. So we're talking about a 53-yard difference from his season average, okay? 53 yards. Think about that. Pat Mahomes leads the league in terms of yak yards per game, 162.9. So Mack was higher than Pat Mahomes last week. He's the league leader. Mack was at 166. That's how ridiculous the yak was for the Patriots in that game. That is scheming it up. And the yak per completion... 10.9 yards last week. The league leader for yak per completion is Tua at 6.3. Mack was at 10.9. Insane number. So the reason is Mack, the reason Mack was uber efficient, I should say, is the air yards per completion still really low, but the yak was super high. So think about this. Ramondre, 51 yards after the catch. That was tied for the 11th most in the NFL last week. And that included that huge 34-yard catch and run on that first intent to get that final drive going where Mack led them down the field for the game-winning touchdown to Gusecki. Remember, they caught him off guard. Great call by Bill O'Brien in terms of get my playmaker in space. He did that. He caught them. He caught the Bills off guard. Ramondre goes down the field. That got that drive started, okay? Kendrick Bourne. Now, I've been saying this since we started the pod going back before We had the pod to my old employer. Kendrick Bourne is the Yak King. Okay, Bourne, 46 Yak yards last week. That was tied for the 15th most in the NFL. So you had a guy in Ramondre Stevenson that was 11th in the NFL in Yak last week, and you had Bourne that was 15th. Also, so that's a big thing. The playmakers, Kendrick Bourne, Ramondre, do your thing after the catch. They did that, okay? The other thing, also give credit to Bill O'Brien on that Bourne touchdown, right? Where Hunter Henry, if you go back and you watch that touchdown, play. Basically, Hunter Henry picked like three guys and Bourne had a really easy opportunity to get into the end zone. That's coaching. That's scheming. That's play calling, right? We also saw him using motion, which is something we've been calling for all season, right? With Douglas and the defense now has to be aware of that speed with Douglas, right? They finally weaponized his speed. Remember, 4.4440, that was in the 76th percentile. His broad jump, 134 inches, 97th percentile. So he brings an explosive element that you really haven't had, and they used it last Sunday. So play action to Farrell Brown. We saw that. That's how you see 30 yards a yak out of Farrell Brown, a guy that nobody ever heard of before the season. That's the play caller. Give him credit for that. And just getting the ball out to Bourne, let him do his thing. A smart play call where the defense with the Ramondre play at the end of the game there, they're not expecting you to check the ball down to your running back or set up a screen for your running back. They're expecting you to try to move the football down the field because you got to at least... You got to go down the field and get a field goal to win that game. And Bill O'Brien caught him. So that's excellent play calling. So what we finally saw is Bill O'Brien optimized the playmakers and played the right guys. It was Bourne and it was Douglas. Less Devontae Parker. He doesn't fit with Mac. Bill O'Brien did it. Thank you, Bill. In fact, if you look at Devontae Parker, we've told you. Devontae Parker, not a great weapon. 2.9 yak per completion. 
Why was Matt good in that game last week? Yak, the guys were making plays for him after the catch and they were scheming it up. Yak, that's what the Patriots need. He was at 2.9 yak per completion in terms of that's where Parker's at at the season. 2.9 yak per completion or per reception, I should say. 100th of 132 qualified receivers and tight ends. He can't do shit after he catches the ball. Okay, we've told you about the separation. 1.9 yards of separation per target. Last in the NFL. That means when he's targeted, 1.9 yards of separation with the defensive back. That is atrocious. He's been last in the NFL since 2020. He can't get open, okay? And just for context, and this is why the Parker thing is just so irritating to me. Finally, they got away from Parker. And maybe it was... Parker coming up with that horrible answer after the game, talking about, well, it hit my fingertips. It wasn't in my grasp. Maybe that's what put him over the edge to say, hey, we shouldn't play Parker anymore. I could have just told you don't play the guy. He stinks. But anyway, if you look at this, just put, just think about this for a second. Since the start of 2022, since Devontae Parker became a member of this Patriots organization, when Devontae Parker gets four or more targets in a game, you know what the Patriots record is? One and eight. One and eight when he gets four or more targets. How about, now remember, he's missed some games. So these are the games he played in. The Patriots, when Parker gets fewer than four targets, you know what the Patriots record is? Seven and three. Okay, so it's pretty simple here. You are basically seven and three, okay? So you're playing at an elite level when you don't throw the ball to Parker. When you do, you're playing like one of the worst teams of the NFL, Okay. So this is the exact opposite type of player you want playing with Mac Jones. Quite frankly, I don't want this type of player on my football team anyway. I've never liked his skill set. And the whole thing after the game two weeks ago against the Raiders, I hated that. But anyway, he's a contested catch guy. They can't do shit after the catch. So It's never made sense to me. Mac is not and never should be a gunslinger. He's a precision guy. Parker is the worst type of receiver to go with Mac. Just never play this guy again. So, okay, just another example of, I want to get into sort of how they schemed it up. Mac Jones with less than two and a half seconds. He was really good in this game. He was 192 yards. That was second in the NFL. 8.1 yards per attempt. This is all less than two and a half seconds. Remember, we told you he's getting the ball out quickly. 8.0 yards per attempt, sixth. 20 completions, second. 83.3% in terms of his completion percentage, tied for third. A 127.8 rating, second, 10 first downs tied for first, okay? So just compare the efficiency of Sunday compared to the season. So he's at 6.2 yards per attempt on the season on those attempts less than two and a half seconds. That's tied for 18th. And it's 1.8 yards lower than last Sunday, where, as we mentioned, he was six in the NFL at 8.0. There are only two quarterbacks north of eight yards per attempt this season on passes under two and a half seconds, Tua and Stroud. And if you think about the coaches there, Mike McDaniel, the play caller with the Dolphins, he's a genius. He gets that tag on him, despite not playing well last week. And then Stroud's offense, the coordinator is Bobby Slowick, who comes off the Shanahan tree. So they've been scheming it up for their guys all season long, and we finally saw that with Bill O'Brien. Okay, the 83.3% in terms of the completion percentage on those throws, less than two and a half seconds, only Josh Allen is higher, okay? And, you know, he's like one of the best quarterbacks over the past four years, despite having some issues this season. No quarterback has a passer rating north of 119 on those attempts with less than two and a half seconds. Mack, again, was at 127.8 last week. So that is scheming it up. And another thing is, the Bills knew that Mack couldn't handle the blitz well. Or I should say this, the Bills knew that Mack hadn't handled the blitz well so far this season. 
He was tied for 22nd in yards per attempt out of the blitz at 6.6. He was 22nd in passer rating at 83.4. Sunday, 12.6 yards per attempt. That was fourth in the NFL. So he doubled his yards per attempt. A 155.8 rating that was tied for first. So he went from well below average to an almost perfect passer rating. He was 8 of 9, 88.9%, outstanding for 113 yards. So the Bills are a team that they were only 19th in blitz rate coming into the game, 24.4%. In that game Sunday, they blitzed on 33.3% of max dropbacks. So they went up 8.9 percentage points, almost 9 percentage points. So they went out of character because they thought they could expose Mac with something Mac's not good at. But Bill O'Brien had the answer. Mac had to execute, but they knew what their blitz beaters were going to be. They were ready for the blitz because they knew, hey, this is one of our own weaknesses. The Bills are going to try to exploit that. That's what teams in the NFL do. And the Patriots were able to counter. And in particular, Mac was able to execute. Okay, so just breaking this whole thing down. They used play action. They used their best players. And look. They pushed Michael Awenu out to tackle. Some of that was out of necessity, but the line being healthier and Awenu's kind of stabilizing that right tackle position, that was huge. But the thing that I keep thinking of is why haven't we seen more of this from the Patriots this season, right? Bill O'Brien was brought here to scheme it up, and I thought he did some good things in week one, but since then it's been incredibly underwhelming. And we saw Bill O'Brien elevate the quarterback and out game plan the opposing defensive coordinator, in this case, Sean McDermott, who's considered to be one of the best coaches in the NFL. And maybe now that they've discovered, well, hey, Douglas and Bourne are our best weapons, and the line is now finally close to healthy, they have started to form, hopefully, an identity here offensively, because it's been a tough product to watch for the majority of the season. I hope Juju making his way back doesn't disrupt this. Play the best guys. That's Douglas and Bourne. And let's see what O'Brien can do the rest of the season here. So I thought Sunday was more about O'Brien than it was about Mac. Not to take anything away from Mac. Like I said, I thought Mac played well. I just thought the game was relatively easy for Mac Jones. So now if I still like I'm going back to this whole situation where if I had a chance to get Drake May in the draft, I'd still do it. But I do think that Mac has a chance to keep his job if he can look competent the rest of the year. And I personally, I don't want that to be the case. I want a difference maker at that position. But it makes the beginning of the season, now that we think back, so aggravating. Now, this could just be a one-off, right, where we look back and say, hey, Mac had that one good game. But if that performance is possible, was it just a personnel thing? And why did it take so long for this team to determine who their best playmakers were? You were forcing Parker and Juju on Mac Jones. Why? Because of their contracts? Because you paid Juju and because you extended Devontae Parker and you gave up a third-round pick for him? For me... What simplified this week is just play your best players. If you want a chance to win, play your best players. And if the Patriots look competent the rest of the season, it's going to make the beginning of the year look awful. Because what were you doing for the first six games of the season or so where you're playing guys like Parker and you're playing guys like Juju Smith-Schuster? You know now who your best playmakers are and you should have known before the season. I've been saying for two years, Kendrick Bourne is your best weapon and the Patriots just didn't want to utilize him and they've been going with these guys that don't make sense with Mac Jones. So we'll see. Is this something to build on? And we'll do a full preview of the Dolphins and the Patriots with my buddy John Jastrzemski coming up later on in the week. But my whole point with this is, let's see if this is a one-off or it's something they build off. Because if they build off this, it's going to piss me off because they could have been better at the beginning of the season. And I hope they're they're not just winning a couple of games here or there and it just fucks up your draft position. That's what I don't want to see. I don't want to see the Patriots win like, say, two more games, and that way they can't get into the Drake May sweepstakes. If they actually make a legitimate run here and start to play pretty well, 
okay, then let's see what you have down the stretch of the season here. But I definitely don't want to be in the middle of that where you just win a couple here and you get stuck with like, say, the ninth pick in the draft. Okay, so I did want to move to the Bs because they're rolling. And I said after they started 2-0 and on the pod that I thought they had a really good chance to win six of their first seven based on the schedule. Well, they haven't lost in their 6-0-0 after a 3-0 win on Tuesday night. They have a chance now to get to seven straight, obviously, on Thursday night when they play a bad team in the Ducks. The only bad news from the game on Tuesday night was Jacob Lauko went down when he got hit by Jason Dickinson's skate blade. That was really scary. Luckily, he avoided any serious damage. Now, Loco joked about it on his Twitter page, posting some picture from Lord of the Rings. If you haven't seen it, just go to Loco's Twitter. It's basically, I, I don't, I'm not a big Lord of the Rings guy, but it's this ugly dude with like a disformed face. So the fact that he was okay to post that type of picture and sort of joke around about it sort of tells you that he dodged a bullet there because that really could have been bad. It was near his left eye. So you never know what's going to happen in a situation like that. So I'm just glad he's okay. Jim Montgomery said he avoided, as we said, any serious injury. So that's the good news out of that thing. But that was for a minute there. The Bruins are rolling. You're feeling good about the game. That was scary. Okay, a couple of early observations with this team. And look, we are early. And the schedule has not been very difficult. That's why I told you they could win six of their first seven. Okay, but they're undefeated. And as we're recording late Thursday afternoon, the only other teams, the last two Stanley Cup champs, the uh, the Golden Knights and the Avs, are the only teams that don't have even an overtime loss, right? I mean, the, the Stars are 4-0-1, but you're in a conversation right now with the Avs and the Knights, the last two Stanley Cup champs. Pretty good company, right? A couple of things that stick out to me. Okay, first of all, the goalie play is, again, phenomenal between Swayman and Allmark. So the Bruins are giving up just 1.17 goals per game. That is first in the NHL by a wide margin. The Knights are second at 1.86. No other team is south of two besides the Bruins and the Knights, and that's a wide gap. The gap between the Bees and the Knights is wider than the Knights and the team that is seventh in goals against per game. So wide gap. Save percentage naturally the best as well at 9.59. They've given up seven goals in six games. Think about that. They've only given up seven goals in six games. So Swayman and Olmark have been both great. That's part of what made this team the best team in the NHL last season, or I should say the best team in NHL history last season, is during the regular season, they had two elite goaltenders. Okay, so that's the first big takeaway is the goaltending looks like, and like I said, the schedule gets more difficult. The goaltending looks like it's going to be elite again this season. The other big takeaway is Matthew Patra. So... He had, a, he had, of course, the point in the opener against Chicago where he showed the patience, found Carlo, and then Frederick scored on the Carlo shot, redirected it. But the last two games, he has three goals, okay? The game on Tuesday night, you have Bedard on the other side, who's this prodigy, right? And Patra now has more goals than he does on the season, three to two. Oh, by the way, Bedard cannot win a faceoff. That's just a side note. I don't know, slight digression, but anyway... You see the finish on the breakaway from Patra after he forces the turnover, then just jumps onto the boards. You see the energy like that was a great goal on the breakaway. And then he had two goals against the Ducks on Sunday. Right. So he gets the feed from Geeky on the first goal where nice play by Geeky and he finishes. And then the second, he won a puck battle and eventually puts back a rebound from Jake DeBrus. So showing some toughness there as just a 19 year old kid. So with Patra, this to me is just such a big development for this team and quite frankly, like going forward, not just for the 2023-2024 Bruins, but just for the organization going forward. And look, as I preface all this, we're six games in, I get all that. 
but you needed to replace Bergeron and Krejci. And you may have found your next guy, not even a year removed, right? Immediately, you find the guy that can fill the void. And I'm not saying he's going to have like a Bergeron Krejci career, but you found a guy that can fill in right away and he's only 19 years old and this is just the start of it. So it sort of alters your take on the team because this was the unexpected. And you have Pasternak and Marshawn doing their thing as we expected. Those guys have been great and they've been expected, as we said. Like, these guys are great players. Pasta, five goals already in six games. Marshawn has seven points in the first six. Pasta has eight. But finding a guy in Matthew Patra, who going into training camp, nobody expected this guy to be on the team. And for him to have this level of impact this early on in his career, it's just a major development. It's sort of recalibrates what you think of the Bruins if they have a guy in Patra that can stabilize sort of that second line or third line. They moved him around a little bit at one point in the game on Tuesday. He's out there with Marshawn and Pasternak. So it's just the beginning for this guy. Unbelievable. Okay, so that's really, that to me has been the biggest storyline so far for the Bruins. As great as Pasta's been in Marshawn, you kind of expect those and the goalies have been great, but you could at least see that happening again after the year they had last year, especially Swayman wants to get the big contract and all that different type of stuff. But Potra coming out of nowhere, this is a great story. And it's something that the Bruins needed to happen. Okay, you would like to see them be a little bit better on the power play. Just three for 22, that's 13.6%, 21st in the league. And look, they went through that stretch last year where they struggled a bit. And a lot of new guys, of course, on the power play, you don't have Bergeron anymore. You don't have Krejci anymore. So it's going to take a little bit of time. So that's something if you're looking at it, it's going to need to get better, especially when the schedule gets a little bit more difficult, okay? And as we alluded to, you play Anaheim on Thursday. They stink. But after that, you start to get tested. Detroit, Florida, Toronto, all at home. Then Detroit and Dallas on the road. Detroit's been really good to start the season. They're 5-1-1, one, and one, scoring like crazy. Dylan Larkin is tied for first in points at the time we're recording with Jack Hughes at 14. Debrinkit is third at 13, his nine goals and the most in the NHL. So Detroit's been... Off to a really good start. They're first in goals per game at 4.86. Florida's just 3-3. Three and three, But we know, and I'm excited for that game, it's going to get testy after what happened last year in the postseason. And then Toronto, 3-2-2 two and two to start the season. Not great, but we know they have the firepower. Austin Matthews already has seven goals, which is tied for second in the NHL. And then there's Dallas. We know how good that team has been over the past few years. They're 4-0-1. Oh, so... You got a tough part of your schedule coming up after the easy part of the schedule. So the Bs, we shouldn't take anything away from them, right? They did better than anyone would have expected, even if the schedule's been favorable. But I think we learn more about this team after the Ducks game, right? If you win three of those five, you're feeling really good about yourself. And it's important that you bank those wins early on in the season. Like if you started slow, this thing could have got ugly with this this next stretch of the schedule coming up. So it's really good the start that they've got off to. And I kind of predicted that they get off to this type of start, but believe me, I didn't expect 6-0. Okay, now, the one other thing I'll say is this. We're going to find out, as I mentioned, whether this team's real or not in this next five-game stretch, but I'm just not going to doubt this organization anymore, okay? Every time you think it could be over, they respond. When they lost in 2019, I thought that team was done, right? It's like, you go to Game 7 against the Blues, a series you should have won, Chara came back from a broken jaw. I thought it was over. But what happens? After that, they have the best record in the NHL before the COVID stoppage. And if the season never stops, who knows? Maybe you end up winning the Stanley Cup that season. But the whole bubble was a mess. Remember, 
Pasta couldn't have like the tune-up time with the team because he was working out with non-NHLers, like basically violating the COVID protocols. You had the whole situation with Tuca, so they weren't good in the bubble. We all acknowledge that. But what if it never stopped, right? What if the season never stopped? I mean, it would have been great for the world if we didn't have to deal with the COVID situation. But you get my point is it was a different team post-COVID resumption, if you will. Okay. And then after the 2021-2022 season, they lose in the first round to Carolina. They were sixth in the East. They fire Bruce Cassidy. And I thought at that time, it was Don Sweeney, if anybody, that should be getting his walking papers. I thought that Cassidy was an outstanding coach, and he proved that last year by winning the Cup. But you realized, as great as Cassidy was, and he proved to be that in Vegas, as you said, the Bruins did need a change, right, behind the bench. And what happens is Krejci comes back. DeBrusque has the best season of his career. And this is after DeBrusque had demanded a trade the year prior. And Montgomery's system of getting defensemen involved in the rush unlocks this team. They went from 15 in goals per game at 3.09 to second at 3.66. So it was the right hire, despite the flame out in the postseason, right? Splitting up Bergeron and Marshawn, that didn't make sense when Bergeron came back from the injury. Not making the goalie change quick enough was infuriating. You waited till game seven to go to Swayman when Olmark, we know, was banged up. You inexplicably sat Grizzly. Just so many dumb decisions and mind-numbing decisions in that series. He really overthought that series against Florida. But the regular season, it went as well as you possibly could have imagined. And it was just time to move on from Cassidy in terms of the message in that dressing room. And now this offseason, it wasn't just Bergeron and Krejci. It was Bertuzzi. It was Hall. It was Orloff, okay? They were all huge for this team last year. And now we're looking up at a 6-0 team. So this Bruins team, it looks like they're going to be a lot better than everybody thought. So we talk about the Celtics. It's going to be an awesome season. It's going to be a ton of fun. We're going to have two great winter teams to watch. And I, I shouldn't say great with the Bruins, but two really entertaining teams to watch, right? And after we just went through that horrible Red Sox season and the Patriots so far. So this is a huge development. The Bruins look great. Potra to me is the biggest storyline so far early for this team. Okay, speaking of the Red Sox, I mentioned them. So it's now official. They have Bloom's replacement. It's Craig Breslow. So I'm going to save most of my thoughts on this for our next pod with my buddy Lou Merloni. He's going to join us. So we'll get into this in greater detail with Lou, but just some of my initial thoughts. So... The Sox clearly did not have the market they thought they would have, right? We've been over this, that basically they fired Dombrowski three and a half years in. They did the same thing with Hein Bloom. So some of those candidates that pulled out, Brandon Gomes with the Dodgers, Sam Fold with Philly, James Click now with the Blue Jays, a World Series GM. So Gomes will wait for something more secure. Fold, it probably would have been a weird dynamic with Cora considering the fact that they were up for the same job when Cora got rehired by the Red Sox. And then... Click is friends with Heim. So Heim's probably like, yeah, uh, James, you don't want to take that job. Okay, so we've established that. Now, when we talked to Catillo last week, I talked myself into a Levine-Craig Breslow pairing where Levine would be the number one. Okay, well, the Sox told Levine he was out, Thad Levine, that is. So part of the reason I would have liked Levine is I told you about they won the Pablo lopez Luisa Rise deal. I mean, in a landslide. But anyway... Minnesota last season, second in home runs, fifth in isolated power. Their pitching staff was fourth in war, third in whip, and first in strikeout rate. So really good analytic numbers. So the Red Sox are, as we know, very analytically driven. And this is a guy that's been a number two for a while. Like, he's primed to be the guy running a front office at this particular point in time. So I thought it made sense. 
But my hunch is this. The interview just didn't go well with Levine because he's had interviews with other organizations and he hasn't got hired yet. So I'm guessing he was not impressive in the interview process. And I feel like they fell in love with Breslow during the interview process, right? So even though being a number two guy in Boston would have been a promotion for Breslow, Breslow had leverage if they really wanted him, which clearly the Red Sox did. If you read their press release, they love the guy, okay? And I mean, you're not going to give a press release saying you don't love the guy when you just hired him. But anyway, he could say no to this job, right? He could say, hey, either I'm getting the number one job or I'm not coming for anything. So he had that leverage because he knew the organization loved him and wanted him in some capacity. So you were going to have to give him the number one job, right? And maybe even if he's not technically ready, right? I mean, I don't know how you determine if a guy's ready or not, but by his resume, you wouldn't think that this guy's primed to be a GM right now. He hasn't checked off all the boxes, right? The Sox, basically, my guess on this is they said we can't lose this guy. He's going to have a long runway naturally because he can't fire another guy after three and a half seasons. And that's part of the reason that this job was less appealing this time around. But I think the Red Sox looked at it and said, okay, we'd rather be maybe a year or two early on this thing than a year or two late. Like, we don't want to lose him to a different organization, and we look up five, six years from now, and this is one of the best general managers in Major League Baseball. So even if he hasn't put in the technical time that most guys would in a front office before they get this gig, we got to get him in now, because if we don't, we're going to lose him. And he had the leverage of saying, I'm not saying this happened, but he was never going to be the number two guy. Clearly, you could tell he was never going to be the number two guy, even though I thought, okay, Levine, Breslow, that makes sense. But I totally understand why they went with Breslow here. The other thing the Red Sox like is he comes off the Theo tree, okay? Theo hired him in Chicago, and multiple people reported Theo had a role in this, including Lou Maloney, who, as I said, we'll talk about this later on in the week. So that reassures them, right? And here's part of the reason Theo loved him. Okay, like when you're getting information from Theo, one of the best GMs, if not the best GM to ever do it. Like, you're going to take that seriously, especially considering he got you two rings and put together most of the prospects for 13 and 18 and all that. Jen McCaffrey had a story up with Chad Jennings and Patrick Mooney, who's from The Athletic in Chicago. Of course, so, of course, McCaffrey and Jennings are from The Athletic here, and Patrick Mooney's the guy that initially reported, like, it was going to be Breslow. So here's what you need to know. Theo Epstein, this is from their story, personally recruited Breslow to join the Cubs and hired him as the Director of Strategic Initiatives in 2019. Around that time, Epstein and Hoyer, Jed Hoyer, of course, were preparing to make sweeping changes in the scouting and player development. The Cubs were lacking in those areas, particularly on the pitching side. Homegrown pitchers, who were either drafted or signed as international free agents by the organization and then made their debuts in 2013 to 2019, accumulated a total of 178 in the third innings. Think about that. From 13 to 19, guys that were drafted or signed as international free agents, just 178 in the third innings for the Cubs. That's why this team sucked. They didn't develop any pitchers. In 2023 alone, the Cubs accumulated 417 in the third innings from pitchers who debuted after spending a full year in Breslow's program. Okay? That doesn't include Cubs closer, as they mentioned, Adbert Elzolai, who's nasty, who developed, by the way, they say a nasty slider in 2020 at the alternate site, a, a pitch that Breslow pointed as proof of concept that their methods have staying power. When the Cubs did an organization-wide assessment of their pitching development after 18, they found some concerning trends. Very few pitchers were drafting, they were drafting, were increasing velocity, and some were even slowing down. 
That's a thing of the past. In 2023, Cubs minor league pitchers accounted for a f- all, f- all full season levels were tops in average fastball velocity. So in the program, they basically went from not developing pitchers whatsoever to developing a ton of pitching prospects in that organization. And I also went through what the Cubs did with Kyle Hendricks, right? Changing his usage. I mentioned that in the pod with Catilla, where they had him throwing more change-ups than he had in the past. Justin Steele has developed into a Cy Young candidate. You look at the Cubs system, Cade Horton third ranked in terms of right-handed pitching prospects by MLB.com. Third ranked in all of baseball. Kid's a stud. Jackson Ferris is the ninth ranked left-handed pitching prospect in all of Major League Baseball. So this is something the Red Sox need to address. They haven't done a good job developing pitchers in years. That's what makes Bayo so impressive. He's the outlier. It's like, how the fuck did you come through this system, Brian Bayo? Like, how can you do it? Nobody else has done it. We haven't seen it since what? Like Clay Buckholtz? Even Erod, remember he was in a trade. So this is just something that the Red Sox need to address. They haven't done a good job developing starting pitchers. And clearly Breslow did that in Chicago. But the big thing to me here is, even if it feels, as I said, early, and it may be early, but if your projection is, when you get him in the room, when you look at his resume and you see what he did in Chicago with all these pitchers, and if you're, and he's a Yale guy, he's smart, all this different type of stuff, which is kind of ironic because, of course, Heim's a Yale guy too. But anyway, if you think he's going to be an elite GM, if that's what you're projecting, you better be early rather than late. You don't want to miss on him, especially after having him in and interviewing and all that, right? So they better be right. That's the one thing, because this is clearly a projection, but they better be right. They have to get this one right because he's going to get a long runway. The other thing is this. The reason I think that you can sell this is, I get it, he's only been working for a front office since 2019. I think there's one important thing, and I want to ask Lou about this when we talk to Lou. He's also a former player, Craig Breslow, of course, part of the 2013 Red Sox championship team. He knows how a clubhouse operates. He knows how a trade deadline can be perceived by a player or a manager. Remember, the trading deadlines around here for the past couple of years have been a flat-out mess. Even the year they made a run, people were upset they didn't get more because Schwarber wasn't going to be ready for a while. He was coming, I think he had a hamstring injury at the time. Remember, he didn't make his debut that year until the 13th of August, right? And you didn't get a ton of the trading deadline that year. Now, it worked out, but the next two years, the trading deadlines have just been a dumpster fire, right? So he's going to know how the player takes that. Heim didn't understand that. So when it's just Heim, an analytics guy, delivering the message, it's one thing, okay? When it's a former player doing this, fair or unfair to Heim, there's just going to be more of a respect factor, right? Like when he goes to the coaching staff and he presents them with these analytics, it's going to be perceived differently from Alex Cora and his coaching staff and even the players than Heim Bloom that never played. And that may be fair or unfair, but I just think it is a reality. Okay, so I like it. I'm in. I know it's a risk, but you can't deny the development of the pitchers in Chicago. And I like this hybrid. I do. I like the hybrid of a former player that's an analytics guy. I mean, that's like my perfect person to take over the organization. Even if I think he's early, talking about a former player that loves analytics, like I'm all in. As I said, we'll get Lou's take on this. We'll get into what's coming for Breslow in the near future. But I do like the hire, even if they may be early. I rather, remember they were early on Theo. I'm rather be early than late. Now, of course, we'll have to see if he makes this thing work and he's got a lot of work to do this offseason. It's a challenging offseason for the Red Sox. But all in all, 
I like the move. I do. Despite I know the search got a little bit ugly for Red Sox fans. I like the move. I'm in on Breslau. I'm in. I approve this. All right, coming up next, have time for a call and an email. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on Cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. All right, so time for a call, time for an email. That number is 617-396-7172. Hey, Brian, this is Luke from Back Bay. Uh, just watched the Celtics opening night. Uh, I have to say, I mean, it was great for the first couple quarters, and then at the end, I was having some deja vu. Uh, I felt like I'd seen that before, about the Celtics collapsing at the end. But, you know, I, I didn't think I'd see it this season as much with them adding Drew Holiday and Porzingis. Uh, Porzingis looks awesome. I'm really happy about that addition. But, uh, you know, with all this extra top-tier talent, one of the things that I was thinking about, especially in the last five minutes when there was that stretch when uh, Jalen Brown had this horrible turnover where he just throws it into the middle of the pile of traffic, and then he turns it over again on the next possession, and then on the next possession, he fouls on a three-point shot. And it was like, this is crunch time. The Celtics are trying to reclaim the lead after blowing, you know, a 10-point lead. It makes me wonder, do you think the Celtics could be better with Jalen Brown not on the court? I mean, they have guys like Porzingis and, and Drew Holiday now, and, you know, they don't tend to make the same boneheaded turnovers that Jalen Brown does whether it's just dribbling into traffic and losing it off his foot with his left hand or just making a stupid pass. I don't know. It, it, it's infuriating. And when you have elite options besides Jalen Brown, it makes me wonder, should Jalen Brown maybe get less playing time? Probably early to tell, but curious to hear your thoughts. Thanks. It's an interesting point, and we'll bring in producer extraordinaire Jamie McClellan on this, because I started the show, or I, part of my open, of course, we opened with the Celtics, and part of it was on Jalen. Now, I don't think, to your point, that we should re overreact to one game, but this is something that I've been concerned about all offseason. And the Celtics last year, remember, they were better when Jalen, by the numbers, they were better with Jalen off the court than on the court, right? And... I do wonder, like, there are certain games where if Jalen doesn't have it going, there may be a better lineup. Like, there's no way you would ever say, hey, is is it a better... And this is amazing to say this out of a guy that just signed a Supermax, but I do think at times, Jason Tatum, 
Derek White, Drew Holiday, Al Horford, and Porzingis could be a better closing lineup to end a game than having Jalen Brown out there. And I know that's crazy to say, but all those guys, with the ex- I, I can't really put Porzingis in this category, but of the guys that would have the ball in their hands, Drew Holiday, Derek White, and Jason Tatum, all three of those guys are better decision makers than Jalen is. Al Horford's not going to do anything to fuck up your offense. He may miss a three, but he's not going to dribble the ball off his foot. He's not going to turn the basketball over. And Porzingis is going to be in the game. You need Porzingis in the game because of that spacing element that he brings. We saw it on display tonight. So to your question, that would be a bold move. And I do wonder, like, if it's a closing game and you feel like if you're Joe Mazzulla, it's better to have Jalen off the court than on the court. I just, I wonder if you can do that during the regular season because the guy just signed for $300 million. Maybe that's an argument to do it because he's got his money, like, and all that. But that's a tough thing to do when you have a guy that stature on the league that has just been all NBA. But just from the naked eye and from the numbers that I've given you over the past basically year and a half on Jalen and how he doesn't really rate out in the impact metrics. He never really has. It's a fair point. And I said it like this is this was my number one concern with this team coming into the season. We talk about health and all that. I just I don't know how a guy like like Jalen has got to find a way to get his shots in rhythm. And you could tell, Jamie, he was just he's the only guy that looked uncomfortable tonight. Hauser was missing shots. That's what Hauser's out there to hit shot. He just missed shots. I mean, it's not like he looked uncomfortable. Cornette was doing his little thing. Like he had a nice little (laughs) offensive rebound when he tapped it out. Nobody looked like you could tell holiday still sort of like searching for it. He just came over in the trade. He's just playing with these guys. Jalen's the guy to me. Like Porzingis looked like he'd been playing with Tatum for 10 years. These guys, they looked awesome together. I mean, that was fun to watch, but Jalen's the one guy where you're like, it didn't it didn't look good tonight it's one game let's see on friday night but he's the one guy that didn't look good yeah totally i think uh you know you mentioned this going into the season that that was probably going to be the guy who struggled the most with these new guys coming in and i think on the one hand it's i get it's just how things go when you bring in stars and you already are a star like it's gonna be you know most times there's gonna be issues regardless if you're jalen brown or whoever like it's rare that they mesh so well so I guess just give it time. I think I, I, I'd say to his point, like, yeah, today he's right that Jalen Brown probably didn't deserve being on the court. I think what you hope for optimally is you just let it play out. And maybe if things are still not looking good, game 50 or something, then sure. But I think you got to just hope that, uh, you know, they just build their chemistry, including Brown. Like maybe, like you said, he clearly felt like I need to drive and get my shots up. It's my first game back after my contract, but hopefully, you know, like cooler heads will prevail and he'll kind of figure out his rhythm in the team, right? I think that's the the best outcome and you've got to at least see if that's possible before anything drastic. Yeah, I'm not saying that, like, I I don't want to go, I'm not saying anything drastic is going to happen. I'm just saying, like, I feel like the adjustment period for Jalen is going to be more difficult than all these other guys. Drew Holiday is not the type of player, especially at this point in his career, he's already won a championship. He's not like seeking, hunting out shots. He's not like seeking out numbers. Yeah. Like Jalen doesn't want to be a guy that goes from averaging 26 points a game to 18 points per game. He doesn't want to do that. But I do wonder like that he's the guy that was going to have to sacrifice the most. Like everyone thought Porzingis' shots are going to be way down when he came over. I don't think that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really I, I, don't. I don't think that because I think that his spacing is going to be so critical. And you heard Joe Mazzulla like after the game, he's saying, or excuse me, one of the mic'd up sessions, whatever you call it. He was saying, if you have a shot, take it. 
Porzingis, this guy pulls the trigger so he's quick. Taking it. He's taking yeah, he's going to sure. take that shot. The thing that Jalen has a problem with, it's like the decisions are slow. He gets the ball, yeah. dribbles, he dribbles again, he dribbles again. It's like, you just got to make a quick decision. Yeah. If you want to drive, drive. If you want to take the shot, take the shot. So that's my that's my concern is it's like it, like these guys, like Derek White is an ex- exceptional at making quick decisions, yeah. right? He gets the ball, and that's from the Spurs. He's going to shoot it, he's going to pass, or he's going to try to take you off the dribble. Jalen, it's like, hey, how's everybody doing? I, I got to just get the ball. It's just like sometimes, <laughs> man, I'm telling you. And this is some of the frustration we've had like in for the years. past with Jalen Brown. But I would say, like, if you were going to, out of the top four guys, Porzingis, Holiday, Tatum, and Jalen, like, I would say Holiday's probably going to have to sacrifice the sec- the most shots. Mm-hmm. But I would say number two on that list is Jalen. And I don't think it's a concern for Holiday, but I would say Jalen's number two yeah. on the list. I agree totally. I think the only thing that might uh, work itself out is like you said, is Porzingis going to be the second best player? I'd be, I'd say yes if he does this every night. It's like he, you know, can he keep it up for eighty two games, playing thirty eight minutes a game? I was like, seems like a lot for you know his body. Thirty eight was yeah, thirty eight was a lot for he the opener. Great. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I understand why they did it. I mean, they got probably would have been less if they got something out of Hauser, just because. Yeah. Not to say they play the same position, but. Hauser, that's the thing about him. He's up and down as a shooter. As pretty as his shot looks, it's just, it's inconsistent. You know what I mean? Like, totally. And I'm saying that for a guy that shot north of 40% last year, but you get the point. Like, he'll go on stretches for a week where he can't hit anything, and then he'll hit everything. It's just, I mean, so he's going to continue to get playing time, but you'd like to play him more than 14 minutes. I was surprised that Pritchard got as little mm-hmm. time as he did tonight. I think part of that was they were playing big more than they were playing small. Like they kept going to that double big lineup, which I thought was interesting. I didn't love the Cornette outfit. And look, they're trying to, it's early, it's game one. So they're yeah. trying out a bunch of different shit, but I don't, I, I don't think that's going to work because look, Al's a great player, but neither one of those guys are great athletes at the big no. position. Like the reason it worked. And I think you, you certainly can do it with Al and Porzingis because of the spacing Porzingis brings. And Porzingis at the four is fun because Porzingis can come over and muck shit up as a shot blocker. Not to say that he's at that Rob level. And that's why I worked with Rob is because Rob was like this great free safety, free safety roamer. Mm-hmm. I think Porzingis can do that a little bit. But when you have Cornette and Al on the court together, you don't really have one of those guys that can roam around and do the Ed Reed, Troy Palomalo stuff. No, he looked a bit uh, bit out of sorts tonight. I thought Cornette, you know, a couple times he's had the ball in his hands. He's like, all right. How quickly am I going to get rid of the ball? So you got to something with it, I guess. Yeah. But, how, um, how about the like the baby hooky miss? There wasn't even close. <laughs> it was like I'm, three I'm, feet away. I know. Yeah, barely grazed the rim. So, <laughs> but hey, they're going to try to get minutes out of him. Hey, let's yeah. get to, so let's get to this email we got, Jamie. Yeah, sure. It's kind of uh, along those lines. This is from Dan in Boston. Dan writes: If in the Drew Holiday trade, the Seas had to move Rob Williams to Portland, and now Portland wants to ship out the Time Lord for some draft picks. Why couldn't the Celtics, who are trying to win now, have sent a pick or two to Portland instead of Rob? And obviously, they traded uh, Brogdon as well. Well, they did send picks. Well, I guess more he's suggesting. But yeah, there you go. Yeah, they sent picks out in that trade. And Rob, that's what Portland wanted. They needed So they needed two first-round picks, which they got. Uh, one of them was the Warriors pick. They needed a contract two contracts to match to get close enough to the Drew Holiday contract. Those contracts, we knew it was going to be Brogdon. The other one was going to have to be Rob. And Rob, for them, we'll see like how long they keep him. But mm-hmm. they could decide, hey, we want to keep him, even though we traded for Aiton as well. But the other thing is this. Think about this. If Rob is playing well at the trading deadline, even before that, think about all the... like For example, the Grizzlies. 
They just lost Steven Adams for the season. He yeah. needs to have surgery. You think about some of these other teams across the Dallas. Could you, I mean, Dallas could desperately use Rob. They're starting Derek Lively, a rookie out of Duke at the center position. They got Dwight Powell, who's been there forever. But add Rob to an offense with Kyrie and Luka, where they need a guy that can catch lobs. Rob makes a lot of sense for them. So I just think across the league, a lot of teams could be looking at Rob Williams. A lot of contenders across the league. Even the Bucs. Now, the Bucs don't have a lot to trade anymore. But the Bucs could usually definitely use another shot blocker. So that was a smart move by them because yeah. that's an if it doesn't work out for them, they'll find like that guy. He's got a good contract. Part of the reason he's got a good contract is the injuries. But no, it would have been impossible to keep Rob in the Drew Holiday trade. That yeah. was the piece they needed. They needed right. an asset. Yeah, that's a good point that, you know, it's trade value probably only going up. But I mean, it does at least get at maybe it's not a. The right solution, but they got to find someone else on the bench. I feel like who do you who do you think that didn't play tonight that they might need to turn to? You're talking about for bigs or just in general? I just in general. I mean, they just got well, like they zero production they did, outside of yeah. Horford. They didn't play Brissette. Yeah, that's another wing that I would expect to get some minutes. We'll see if Kata gets minutes eventually in terms of the other bigs. I I think it's just more honestly more minutes for Pritchard and mm-hmm. Hauser. That's what I think. Like, I was surprised at how little they played tonight. Obviously, it's the opening game of the season. Yeah. You want to win. But I would I would like to see a little... I, I bet we'll see more Brissett on Friday night. He's a guy that, of course, they like, and they identified him pretty early in free agency as a wing. that He's not going to shoot the ball, but he can play defense around the court and that type of stuff. So I would guess him. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe Banton. They liked him at the beginning of free agency. But I'm not like I know they talked like the bench scoring in the game tonight was obviously like an issue, especially when you had the six man of the year last year. But I think you make the trade off that you did, yeah. If you're the Celtics, so. But Hauser's just got to he's got to get in rhythm. He's got to hit some shots, and I I think that Pritchard's going to have a good season. He just he didn't really get a lot of burn tonight. Yeah, I hear you. I think also I mean not to pile on Brown, but uh, you know he needs to be able to bring more out of the guys when he's leading the second team. I feel like it's just like, it was the same thing last year. I mean, they get, they're getting like nothing out of this and he's a second team all NBA guy. Yeah. I just don't think he can. I think, you know, That's he's tough. always going to, he's always going to be on the court with wider holiday. He, he's not, yeah. he's not a facilitator. He's, yeah. he's a play finisher. Jason Tatum is now both. He's a facilitator and he's a play finisher. Jalen, he's just a finisher. He's, I mean, yeah, He's not a great passer, even though he had the five assists tonight. I mean, how how easy were those reads? It's basically because yeah. the Porzingis is opening up lanes like you've never seen it before. Yeah, well, I guess, I don't know. I guess I just won't panic. Like, he'll have more than 11 points probably going forward. So For we'll, sure, we'll it's one game. And yeah. I, I, just, I just think that this is sort of evidence of what we may have thought coming yeah. into the season, that Jalen is going to have the toughest adjustment because... Porzingis is going to be involved in so much shit in like all the action they run. He's involved. It's interesting too, because, you know, for so many years, people were talking about how similar Tatum and Brown were and how maybe Tatum would fit better with a different type of player. And then you kind of see the results with him and Porzingis. Dude, I'm telling you, man, you're you're exactly right on that. Like, like, this isn't a shot at Jalen, but just seeing Tatum and Porzingis in the two man game. It was working. Oh, it's filthy. It is yeah. absolutely filthy. This is why I love the trade the minute it happened. Mm-hmm. And I know we talked about like, oh, you'd rather give up Brogdon or Smart. Okay, yeah. But I also Either. rather give up Smart for Porzingis. Yeah. Like this guy is, he he brings so much to the table. It's just, 
they got to make sure they keep him healthy throughout the season. I'm sure they'll find ways to give him nights off and not. But do you agree with what I said off the top that last year, 99-93, they lose this game? Totally. No, I wrote that. They just like We saw that a million times, them lose that game. And I saw some stupid people on Twitter being like, oh, like, Porzingis saved them. It was a bad game. I'm like, well, Porzingis is on the team now. Like, that's this part of the team. So, yeah, that's the he's point. the reason they won. But, yeah, exactly. That's no, why totally. he's here. And yeah. like what Missoula was saying before the season, sometimes you have to win different ways. You yeah. can't just win the match. They, they shot 20 less shots than the Knicks, and they won. Now, yeah. part of that is the Knicks did not shoot the ball well, but also part of that is they were uber-efficient from two-point territory. And down the stretch of the game, they used this weapon that they didn't have yeah. last year, and that's a seven-foot-four center that can shoot threes and draws fouls at the end of the game. I love yeah. him, man. He's a great fit. Totally. And I think also, I don't, they didn't shoot that well from three either Celtics and they literally lost like every single game last year when that was the case. Yeah. So it's a refreshing change. Yep. So even though it got a little bit dicey, I thought all in all, yeah, Tatum looks awesome. He looks like he's taking another step. Porzingis looks awesome. Jalen, not so much, um, but we'll see. And then now we get ready for Friday, man. We get ready for the heat. Yeah, totally. I think, you know, it's like if you can work out the kinks and still win on the road in Madison Square Garden, that's pretty good. So yeah, you take it. And and the Knicks are a weird team, man. They're just kind of yeah. tough. They match up well with the Celtics. Yeah, they're scrappy. I don't, I don't like them at all. Not that I hate any of their individual players. I just don't like playing them. Yeah, what's like his cockroaches. face? Uh, they never die. Bardenstein. He became public enemy number one. Oh, yeah. Took that elbow from Porzingis. Oh, man. I mean, it, like, not that, like, this was anything unusual in terms of how bad the officiating was or anything, but it's just like, it's going to be another year. This maddening fucking, you know, official reviews and stuff like that. They take so fucking long, Oh, my man. gosh. They, they, they took like 10 minutes to call double T's. I know. What's, what's that about? Yeah. You needed 10 minutes to just say it's double T's. And then the Porzingis play, and I, I mentioned this off the top, but I don't know what you do if you're no. Porzingis. He's fighting to try to get the guy's arm off him, and he hits him in the face. Like, what is he supposed to do there? Totally. I, I, you know, it made me think of just, you know, all these crazy roughing the passer, et cetera. It's just like the, like, zero tolerance on any contact across these sports. It just, it doesn't really make any sense, but that's the way they're going. So, whatever. Yeah, it's infuriating. All right, Jamie, great stuff, man. All right, go Seas. No doubt. All right, so we'll be back to our regular pod schedule. We got JJ, my buddy John Jastrzemski. We'll preview the Pats and the Dolphins with him. And then Lou Merloni is going to join us. We'll get into the Craig Breslow situation in greater detail. Get Lou's take on that and what he thinks Breslow is going to have to do this offseason. All right, you can always leave us a voicemail, 617-396-7172. Email us at offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Srudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com RG in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXTSTEP to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700, or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, 
Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in New York. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.